even righteous men mess up from time to time. Uh, Godly men fail, but they, they get up on their feet again. Now that is true, but it's not the message of this passage. Why do I think that? Well, Noah's actions aren't explicitly condemned as sin. They're not even mentioned as sin. Noah gets no rebuke from God. In fact, Noah rebukes someone else. He rebukes uh, his own son or grandson. There's no repentance on the part of Noah. We're not given any indication that he's sorry for what he did. In fact, there's very little commentary at all on what's going on. So why is the account here? Why have we got this passage in front of us this evening? Well, it's not to give us a theology of failure, as useful as that might be. But it's there to show us something important about ourselves as human beings and about our world. It's also there to show us something about the God that we worship, the God that Noah worshipped as well. And our first point this evening is we've got three points this evening. The first one is Noah is naked. Noah is naked. You'll find it helpful to have that passage open in front of you. Uh, I'll read 20 and 21 again. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Now, I said, uh, as we've been going through Genesis and as we've been going through the Bible overview, that we're looking to get back to Eden. But getting naked is not the way to get back to Eden. That is not what's happening here. It tells you a bit about what Noah does after he gets off the ark. Noah starts off as a land farmer. Now, just think back, we've only had nine chapters of the Bible. Can anyone think of any land farmers that we've had so far? Cain, that's right. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? He gets off the ark, and his first job that he he does is the same job as Cain. That doesn't sound so promising, does it? Even before we've got into what happens afterwards. He's given a different title for his job than Cain. Cain was a worker of the soil. But here we see that Noah is a man of the soil, literally a man of the earth, a man of Adama, a man of Adam, a man of soil, a man of dirt, if you like. So it could be playing with this idea of the fact that he might be the second Adam, but if you remember, the second Adam didn't do so well either. And if you think this job is a bit of a strange choice, really, especially thinking about what we heard last time. So God has just said to them, right, you can have your choice of meat to eat. So what does Noah do? He goes and plants a vineyard. Was he not really listening to the fact that he could now get on and and raise cattle? Perhaps he was a committed vegetarian. Who knows? Could happen. Uh, But he's got this rather strange job that's got echoes of Cain and echoes of Adam. So it's not really that promising. And it gets even less promising when we discover that he plants a vineyard. Now, it highlights the wine because that's going to be happening in the story. But you think a vineyard in itself isn't such a bad thing. It's about grapes, isn't it? Actually, a vineyard is about fruit. It takes possibly 10 to 15 days to ferment grapes if you leave them in in certain conditions. It's possible that Noah didn't deliberately go out to make wine, but sort of accidentally ended up with it. But I think it's unlikely... Because actually it would be very strange that he'd be unaware of the production of alcohol. I imagine that had happened before the flood. The worrying thing here is that if this was what he was trying to do, it seems very high up his priority list. You know, get off the ark, what do you do? Right, let's get a vineyard planted, let's get the wine going. It certainly seems to be presented that way. 
even if that's not exactly uh, wasn't exactly his top priority. But no moral judgment here is given for what he does. No voice from heaven. No God coming down to the vineyard as he's getting drunk and telling him what he's doing. And as I said before, even later on, it's not Noah that gets cursed. Actually, it's his son and grandson. So as we try and understand this, what's going on, we need to look at what happens next. We need to keep going through the story. As you read books like Genesis, actually, there isn't a lot of comments saying this guy did the right thing, this guy did the wrong thing. Actually, you've got to sort of work it out from what happens next. And that's partly because it's not there to sort of tell you, right, this is right, this is wrong. There are other parts of the Bible that do that. But here it's just presented as fact. This is what Noah does. I should say that it is wrong to get drunk. (laughs) That is clear from elsewhere in the Bible. But that's not the emphasis of what's going on here. This isn't written to warn us off our glass of Chardonnay. What happens as Noah gets drunk? Well, Noah ends up naked in his tent. The picture sort of reads as though he takes off his clothes and passes out in his tent. And we can see in our world that nudity and drunkenness are often linked, aren't they? If you go out on the streets of Leeds on a Saturday night where people are are drinking too much, they're often not wearing very much either. I remember seeing it at university, not actually seeing it, seeing it, but um, my uh, friend of mine, uh, we organised to go and look after uh, people after a pub crawl uh, that our college was doing. So we weren't drinking, we were just sort of going around. But it's amazing, once people start drinking, once the, the wine starts flowing, off, it wasn't really wine, probably more vodka uh, in Lancaster, but there were people taking their clothes off, men and women. Um, it lowers your inhibitions, alcohol. It also raises your temperature, which is not a good combination. So nudity and drunkenness are linked often, and, and they are here as well. But nudity and shame are linked together as well. Through the Bible, if you think back to Adam and Eve, who are unashamed, naked together, the implication being that uh, nakedness later on is something that is shaming. So think about um, during the Second World War, you had the French collaborators, uh, especially the women who had collaborated with the Nazis. When the Nazis were thrown out, the women were often had their heads shaved and they were stripped down to their underwear and forced to walk uh, through the towns. There's a connection between being, being naked, being unclothed and shame. So what are we seeing here then as we see Noah fall in this way, as we see him get drunk, as we see him uncover himself? Well, really, we're seeing a repeat of Genesis 3 for Noah. Just as we saw last week, Genesis 2 was a repeat of Adam, uh, as he gets the commands repeated to him, as he's told to do the same things. Here, this is a repeat of Genesis 3. Think of the themes that we have in this chapter. Sin. Sin to do with fruit. That's significant, isn't it? There aren't a lot of sins really that are recorded so far. But this one is to do with fruit again. We've got nudity and shame. That again, it reminds you back of Adam and Eve who try and cover their nudity, their nakedness with fig leaves. And again, these elements are not present in other narratives in the Bible. You don't see those sort of things happening with Abraham or with Jacob or with Moses. It's trying to draw that parallel between Noah and Adam. Just as Adam fell, Noah is falling. Noah's sin is a repeat of Adam's sin. The new world that's been brought in goes the way of the old world. And what makes matters worse is, well, Ham is hapless. Ham is hapless. Let me read to you verses 22 and 23. 
And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, there's an awful lot of nonsense uh, talked about these verses. And it's because they're trying to understand why the reaction in the next bit that we haven't read, the the bit afterwards where Noah curses uh, Canaan, uh, curses Ham. Why is it so serious? What is it that Ham does that's so bad? Is it just that Ham saw his dad naked? Is that enough to receive the curse that will follow? Well, there are a few options if you uh, read uh, a few commentaries or if you Google it on the internet. And some of them are very far-fetched, but I'll I'll address them. Um, So one option is that Ham commits incest with his mother. That's what uh, some people think, some quite sensible people. Um, Noah is incapacitated uh, with his drunkenness, and the story goes that Ham takes the opportunity to sleep with his mother. Now, that might sound ridiculous, but it might not be as ridiculous as it sounds. To uncover someone's nakedness in the Bible is sometimes synonymous with sleeping with their wife. So I've put on the back of your notice sheet some rather strange verses for us uh, this evening, but Leviticus 20, verse 11 If a man lies with his father, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. Both of them shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. All the way through that chapter, to to sleep with someone's wife is to uncover that person's nakedness. And if you think about it, in the book of Genesis, the next incident of drunkenness will involve incest. It's going to be Lot being uh, uh, having incest with his daughters as they get him drunk. So it sounds horrific. But it's not quite as crazy as it first sounds. But the thing is that Ham, if you read it carefully, doesn't uncover his father's nakedness. That's the technical phrase that people talk about. He just sees it, doesn't he? So if you go down to verse 22 again. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father. So it doesn't say he uncovered the nakedness of his father. Actually, he just saw it. So actually, if you just read the passage carefully, you can see that that's not what it's talking about at all. The other thing that's said about this is that Ham castrates his father. That's what it's talking about by uncovering his nakedness. I told you there were some crazy ideas, didn't I? Um, the reason for that being that uh, it seems that Noah breaks the cycle of the other, uh, other people that we read of in Genesis. So you get that phrase, don't you, at the end? Uh, and uh, uh, after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. In nearly all the other cases, it says, and had other sons and daughters. So this is supposed to be explaining why Noah only has three sons. Why doesn't he have any more children uh, after the flood? But it just seems bizarre, doesn't it? Um, There's no evidence for it there at all. So I think we can dismiss that. There are other even more horrific things. So Ham, Ham being sexually involved with his father... So when it says saw, I read somewhere on the on the internet when I, I googled this uh, in the week. It says there the word saw means saw and was pleased, and there's this whole explanation of why it means this. Except for it doesn't. <laughs> it's just the word saw. It's the word that's used a thousand times in the Old Testament. It's just the normal word for see. So it's none of those none of those things. So what is going on? What is so serious that means actually Ham is going to be cursed? Canaan is going to be cursed?
Well, we see that it really is about seeing him naked. That's partly what's going on. So if you read down on verse 23, then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backwards uh, and covered the nakedness of their father. If it's any of those other explanations, that just doesn't make sense at all, does it? The whole thing is that they're deliberately trying not to see. They're walking backwards with this garment, this covering, to cover him. So it seems as though that's actually what's going on. He has seen uh, his father naked. But what's so wrong about that? Wang, Ham doesn't cover his father. That's clear from the passage. What Shem and Japheth do is presented as the right thing. Ham doesn't cover his father. Instead, Ham goes and tells his brothers. That's his initial response. Instead of covering his father's disgrace, he broadcasts it. Now that might seem like a small thing, sort of broadcasting the disgrace of your father. We know that, that Noah's messed up and Ham did as well. But think actually, you just think of cultures abroad about relationships between family and shame and honour. In some cultures of the world, it's a really serious thing to dishonour your family, to shame your family. Or just think about Moses' culture. Moses was writing uh, this book of Genesis. And in the days that Moses was writing, well, dishonouring or cursing your father and mother was a capital offence. You got stoned to death for it. So again, on, on the back of your sheets, Exodus 21 verse 17. Whoever curses his father or his mother shall be put to death. Now we read that and we think that's pretty extreme. But that is the culture that he's writing into. That is what the attitude was to families and shame and honour and disgrace. And before we judge Ham for what he does, I think actually all of us have a bit of a Ham bent to us, don't we? We're very good at hiding our own sin and broadcasting the sin of others, minimising our own and making other people's sins bigger. Better actually to cover over the sins of others and expose our own. But it doesn't come very naturally to us. But Shem and Ham show what should have been done. Yes, Noah should not have been drunk, but nor should Ham have broadcast it. And it shows the destructive power of sin. This sin leads to other sins, leads to cursing. And the outcome is catastrophic. So our last heading. Canaan is cursed. Canaan is cursed. This is 24 to 29. I'll read them to you again. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were three, for 950 years and he died. Noah here curses Canaan. I've kept been saying Ham and Canaan and sort of mixing them up through this. But there is a bit of confusion, uh, isn't there, of the why uh, it's Ham or, or Canaan. We'll come to that in a moment. But do you see here there's no judgment from God? If you think about Adam's sin, God steps in and God gives the judgment. He sends the curse. But here it's judgment from Noah. Noah is pronouncing the curse on his own descendants. Now, you might think that's a little bit arrogant, putting yourself in the place of God to curse. Perhaps it's the product of his hangover. But it's not portrayed that way. 
You don't read it that way. Partly because, again, Noah's sin isn't commented on. Noah doesn't get any comeback for his sin. But also because these things will work themselves out in history. This is what happens. This is how uh, the sons go on to live. This is what happens in history. Which seems to imply that what Noah is speaking is the truth. Now, Canaan, as we read in our passage, is Ham's son. And there's been lots of questions of why doesn't uh, Noah curse Ham? Why does he curse his grandchild rather than his child? And again, there's all sorts of readings you can get. Is is it that it's actually Canaan who who did the seeing and it's just using a different name? Or uh, is it a way of cursing Ham, just saying cursing your child is cursing him? I think the answer is a lot more simple than we think. By cursing Canaan, Noah was working out God's purposes. Noah was working out God's purposes. Now, you might say, well, that's pretty obvious in a way because God always gets his way. But he's actually working out his purposes for the Israelites and for the Canaanites as well. Canaan, the son of Ham, becomes Canaan, the nation. The nation, the Israelites, were to wipe out in Noah's day. Or certainly, they're supposed to wipe out in Noah's day, but wiped out in the generation afterwards. Here, by cursing Canaan, he's cursing that land, he's cursing that place. So as the Israelites would read this, as Moses wrote it for them, this would be another reason for the Israelites to wipe out the Canaanites, as God had commanded. This was a people that God had pronounced cursed. Right here back at the beginning. Now Ham's other sons don't fare much better. Ham as a whole is not a good picture. We'll see next time when we look at uh, his descendants. His other children include Egypt which you can guess where that's going. Uh, He's also the father of the Assyrians, the Babylonians, all the enemies, or most of the enemies of Israel as they go through. But Canaan is singled out for cursing. God will use the descendants of Shem to, to wipe them out, to take them out of the picture entirely. So Canaan is cursed, but Shem and Japheth are blessed. And God is called the God of Shem. Shem becomes all sorts of different peoples, but we call them the Shemites or Semites, which includes Arabs too. That's why we have anti-Semitism. It comes from Shem's name. Japheth means enlarge, and that's God promises to do that to him, enlarge uh, his land. And actually Japheth, probably of the three sons, is the most successful in terms of expansion. Most of us this evening, I imagine, are Japhethites. His descendants head off all around the globe, including Europe. So we probably are, biblically speaking, Japhethites. But the picture here is of hope through this line of Shem. The line that Abraham will come from. The line that ultimately Jesus will come from. Japheth will dwell in the tents of Shem. That means the blessing that comes to Shem will be for Japheth also. Right here at the beginning of the Jew-Gentile split, if you like, the Semites and the other peoples... We see promise to the blessing of the other peoples, the Gentiles, the Japhethites. Now, I don't think that then excludes Ham, as though Ham could never come in. But again, it reminds us that not everybody is in the tent. Not everybody is going to share in the blessings of the God of Shem. So what can we learn from this account? Well, two things. The first is a sort of big picture thing, and the second is a bit smaller. The first big picture thing is that it's not enough just to start again. It's not enough just to start again. 
Have you ever had that conversation with people where they sort of give the impression that the world would be much better if you could just lock up all the bad people? You know what I mean? Oh, if we could just have bigger prisons, that would sort it all out. We could just get them up, lock them up, and then we can all get on with life. But it wouldn't work. There's lots of reasons why it wouldn't work. But the main reason is that the human heart would be the same for the people inside the prisons and the people outside the prisons. What the flood didn't change was the human heart. That was the problem. Still, if you remember last last time we saw that before the flood, the thoughts of the human heart were only evil all the time. And then virtually the same phrase is used after the flood. So actually, for a restart to work, for a reboot of creation to work, actually, we need our hearts changed. Without that, we'd just be doomed to repeat after repeat after repeat. But praise the Lord, that's actually what he's given us in Christ, isn't it? He's given us new hearts. He's given us hearts to love him. So actually, we can start again. I said this morning, we'd, we'd mention it this evening, that new creation will not be just subject to loads of repeats. We're not going to fall again and then rise again and then fall again. Because we've got new hearts. Because God has given them to us. And then the second thing that we learn is that God does not fail. God does not fail. If we learn anything here about the theology of failure, it's not really about our failure, but it's the fact that God never fails. Never. And the Israelites who are reading this must learn that. God hasn't sort of come up with his plan on the hoof to rescue them. He hasn't sort of got them partway to the promised land, so what shall I do? Actually, this has been planned for a long time. This has been planned since before Noah. This has been planned since before the beginning of time. God is working out his purposes. He's not made a mistake. And we must learn this too. God's plans never fail. God isn't making it up as he goes along. He's not changing his plans because of our failures. God is much, much bigger than that. I remember when I was a younger Christian, I was taught uh, that God has a wonderful plan for your life. We talk about that a lot, don't we? And that is true. God does have a wonderful plan for our lives. But the subtle truth that I was also taught, or a subtle impression I was given, is that we can mess his plan up. So the thinking sort of went a little bit like this. God has a wonderful plan for your life. So for me, it was, you know, I'm going to be a missionary. and I'm going to be married to a woman with the theology of Spurgeon, uh, the cookery skills of Nigella Lawson, and the looks of a supermodel. Or if you're a woman this evening, maybe uh, it would be that you'd marry a missionary who's co- the convictions of Jim Elliot, uh, the muscles of Jean-Claude Van Damme and the good looks of Daniel Craig. But the, the teaching is then, well, every time you make a mistake, every time you don't quite go to God's plan, you sort of get downgraded uh, from this big, wonderful plan to a sort of less wonderful plan. So, you know, you're missionary, well, you could just be a, a minister now or... Well, you missed out on that super spiritual spouse because you didn't go on that mission trip that you should have gone on. And by the time you're done, you end up as a road sweeper with someone with the cookery skills of a supermodel, the looks of C.H. Spurgeon and the theology of Nigella Lawson. (laughs) But that's not true. That's not how it works. God does have a wonderful plan for your life. But it's a plan that's not flummoxed by our mistakes. He uses our mistakes. Now, that's not an excuse to make them. We're still responsible when we sin, when we mess up. 
But God's wonderful plan involves them in his mercy. God's wonderful plan sometimes involves suffering because of our mistakes. It did for Noah. He faced humiliation at the hands of his youngest son. But God isn't failing here. He's not flummoxed by Noah. It's not like he had the plan to restart the world and then, oh dear, Noah's messed up. God never planned this to be a reboot. God never planned this to be a fresh start. He planned it to teach us that we can't have a a reboot without human beings who are changed at a fundamental level. So God wasn't taken by surprise at Noah's fall. It was actually part of his plan. And when we fail, we, we need to remember this. Not so much that righteous men and women do mess up, but that God never does. He never fails. He never makes mistakes. We can rest secure, not because we have our plans, because he has his plan. He still has his plan. And our job is to get in line with it. And remember that he doesn't mess up, even when we do.